in three, two, one. The idea that prestige is what people want most from a job is outdated. The priority has become what they need, which is a positive work culture where they feel seen, appreciated, and trusted. How do we become the kind of leader that can foster this kind of authenticity? How can we target specific skills that foster connection? How can we create trust by modeling how to be a genuine team player? And how can we understand what matters most to our people? When we do, you can expect innovative ideas and top performance to be at an all-time high as our people thrive in a workplace where they know they belong. To help us understand how to become a connected leader is my guest, Julie Lee. Well, hi, Julie Lee. Welcome to the program. We're glad to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Michael. No problem. I had a chance to read your book on an airplane home from an engagement the other day. The book was called I See You, How Compassion and Connection Saves Lives. And basically preparing for our interview and going through and looking at some of your podcast interviews. And I know you were a podcaster for a number of years and I think well over 100 episodes. A lot of great content in there. And we feature a lot of the things you talk about a couple of times a year when it's Mental Health Month because it really is an issue of mental health. But we want to address today the importance of connection in a business environment, because we're still dealing with personal and professional lives, and we all have to connect. So how did you get from there to being a leadership expert and specialist and talking about the importance of connection? Well, I don't know if I'm an expert, but what's really interesting is I came to this not because of my education. My degree is actually in elementary education, but I really came to this point because I myself starting at 21 through 27, I completely lost my mental health and had to work to regain it back. And it really was the compassion and connecting with other people through that process that saved my life multiple times. And especially from a leadership point of view, when I had my first panic attack, I was under some very toxic leadership which there were other things at play. I had some childhood trauma that needed to be worked through and different things that I'm sure we all can relate to in our own stories, but it was spurred and it happened while I was under that leader. And then I had a leader that really stepped in and helped me see myself for my potential, what I call high definition thinking. And it completely transformed the trajectory of my life. It made such an impact. Then as I kind of came out of those years after dealing with what I had and witnessing the way a leader can impact someone that works works for them. I just felt called. I started the ICU podcast. We did that for two and a half years. And then I was contracted to write my book, like you talked about, and then really felt motivated as I was asked to and requested to really bring this to leadership in the corporate world, because these principles are true for leadership and work as well and, and employee retention and things like that. Exactly. Um, people want to feel seen. And I have my personal stories that I bring, I bring in obviously as applicable, but if you want to just look at the research side, post-pandemic research right now, Oracle did a study. It's like, people feel like the pandemic severely impacted their mental health. (laughs) Big time, yeah. 53% reported depression, 52% anxiety, and 32% PTSD. So those numbers, I mean, I'll put them up on a screen in a keynote because I want to get paid and because I want some data to back me up. But really why I'm here is because of my personal story, because I watched it 
up close and personal, the impact a leader can have on someone that works for them because it happened to me. Well, and it's an interesting story. And for readers who want to go into your background, and there's lots of emotion in there and a lot of things they can relate to, I think, on a personal basis. And you said it, we can all relate to personal trauma. We all have our own story and it's important to us. And that's part of being seen and understood is that our story might not be the same as your story, but that somebody understands our story. But that's where you seem to find the formula, if you will, to create connection because you saw what bad connection looks like, and then you witness what good connection looks like. So why is that such an important thing? And why is that so important in today's corporate world? We're dealing with human beings, right? Not numbers, not employees, but we're dealing with human beings, which as you and I both know, we talked a little bit about some of our personal life. People come to work, they don't come to work having sloughed off everything in their personal life. And then you obviously you have those relationships at work too, to understand and to navigate through. But really, if we can remember people as human, humans and that we need social connection. Stanford Medical has this great research all about how, because I mean, I already identified the problem that a lot of companies are seeing, right? Like mental health is something maybe in the past we haven't talked about a lot, right? but there's just no time for that now. I think there's a lot of people reeling because they're having employees deal with this like that research showed, but Stanford Medical, there's hope. The answer is it's people that are high in social connection are less likely to struggle in these areas, depression, anxiety, even suicide. So the answer is actually pretty simple. What we need is more social connection, but implementing that into a workspace when you're not used to it, especially if you're used to doing it in an old school way, we are being demanded. We need to shift into change if we want to see employees stay and employees stay in a healthy way, which you and I both know, and I'm sure listeners know, this is no brand new news. When we're happier and when we're more calm, we're going to just work better, right? There's a stat that shows that managers who are good at sharing gratitude with their employees, employees are 50% more productive. It's all truth. It's all the same across the board. But sometimes I think you do have to get intentional at work to make sure you're implementing that into your leadership. I don't feel like I go and say anything shocking or new when I speak. It's just a different framework for looking at it coming from my personal experience. But really, we know these things as parents, as siblings, it's all the same, but treating that work environment maybe with a little more proactivity and candor to just be intentional that we need to take care of each other. And that doesn't mean that we don't hold people to standards, not at all. There's this quote that I love, and I've still never found out who said it, but I love to quote this in my speech, and it's, soft skills doesn't make hard work. Soft skills make you a more pleasant person while doing hard work. Mm. So it's not that we're saying we don't expect hard work. It's the way we communicate about that hard work. It's the kind of person we are doing that hard work side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Interesting. Now you have the advantage, you're a millennial, and you have that perspective as a millennial, which I think is a great perspective. I'm a baby boomer, and I came from the old command and control environment. It was, I'm the manager, I'm telling you what to do, here's your task, go and return and report, right? Like, get her done. And then now we have five generations of workers. And so this has, I want to say it's evolved. And I think in a good way, like the consciousness has evolved where we're starting to treat people on a more humane basis. So I don't think you missed anything. And we've all seen what that looks like. And you witnessed it obviously growing up as well. Anytime we're a parent, we understand what that looks like. How does a leader get to that point of connection? So maybe I'm an older school leader. Maybe I'm in my forties or fifties and I came through a different management style. And now I have a team and I've got to create a good culture. Culture. I've got to build authentic relationships with that team. But all I know is what I know. How do I move from where I know to, let's just say, the more evolved approach? I think there's some simple tools that can work. 
and a lot of this is in my book, I see you. But the three that I really like to focus on, say if I have a 60 minute keynote, we break down is these three principles or mantras or sayings, whatever you want to call that, right. which is I see you, I appreciate you, and I trust you. And then we go through and we talk about really specific tools to communicate that to your employees. Because yeah, just saying infuse social connection into your work culture. I mean, that can feel like up in the smoke. It can feel like, I mean, what does that even mean? Like, what do I actually do today? Right? So we do exercises as simple as, hey, right now we are all sending a text message to someone we work with, identifying one of their strengths. These aren't, once again, these aren't hard, brand new principles coming out, but it's being intentional. And how am I doing this in my leadership? How am I making sure my employees feel seen as more than employees? How am I making sure they feel appreciated? Because going back to that percentage on when managers shared gratitude, they were 50% more productive. So this is helping you too, right? Like companies want to make money. Right. And I trust you. Oh, and I trust you is maybe one of the most important and the one that I think personally I have to be the most intentional about. Because here's the thing if we're wanting our employees to feel seen and we're showing them appreciation and we want to create this safe culture where people are going to take risks and they're going to be innovative and all of these things, you have to create a transparent culture where you're willing to do what you're asking of them. So if you're asking them to be vulnerable and you're asking them to take risks, you have to be willing to do that too. So I trust you. I can't trust you as a leader if you're not willing to do the things you ask of me. There's some hypocrisy in that. So anything as simple as, yeah, it's okay for you to take vacation time because you need that. You need that for your mental health. But me as the leader, I never do it. And I pride myself on how many hours I work, no matter what. As a follower, as an employee, I'm going to see that and I'm going to see right through that, that no, you do see it as a sign of weakness if I take vacation time, right? You wear it as a badge of honor. Yeah, exactly. If you're not willing to do it for yourself, this is why self-compassion is so key too, because you cannot have a hundred percent integrity and having compassion for other people if you don't do it for yourself, because you just don't live it. You don't live it internally. So is not saying it's not worth anything or that you shouldn't try, but if you want to really be an honest person that practices what they preach, man, you got to do it for yourself. That's how you become a trustworthy leader is you do what you say you're going to do for yourself and for them. And then, I mean, cause I think about you and me, Michael, we've talked about, we probably have some personal things in common. You've read my book. So you've already know some vulnerable things about my life. Wouldn't you say that then opens you to be like, Hey, there's some, there's some safety here, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's some safety. And now I feel comfortable because you're willing to share with me. Now I'm willing to share with you. It's almost like some silent permission being given back and forth. And man, as a leader, if you can do that, people are going to be so much more open and they're going to want to follow you anywhere. That's what I always say. When you see me, when you make me feel seen, I will follow you anywhere. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. I will stay at this job instead of taking that higher paid one because I just want to be under your leadership. Interesting. Good value bomb there. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e commerce, B2C, and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company.
And now back to my conversation with Julie Lee. Why do leaders have a hard time in your mind to become authentic and use authenticity and have that vulnerability? Is it ego? Is it about looking bad in front of the group, feeling weak? Is that how our society deems it? I think all of those reasons can be valid depending on the individual. In my brain and what I've seen and in myself observing myself, I think a lot of it comes back to insecurity. Mm -hmm. All of us, whatever we're doing in life, this is our first time going through it, right? It's right. my first time being 32 years old as a single mom, whatever my life circumstances. Right now, it's your first time going through this. When I think so many leaders are in a leadership role and they're insecure that maybe they're not cut out to this. And so then you ask them, hey, also be vulnerable about your weaknesses or be willing to ask for help, especially if they've been under that type of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. And also like you talked about that generational, you do what I say, don't ask questions. This right. isn't a conversation. This is giving orders. That's what they've seen modeled for them. Exactly. Well, it's what That's we saw with our parents, right? I never saw them with a weakness right. on my parents. And we see it from leaders today who fail to apologize. You talk about the pandemic and increased divisiveness in our society. Um, oh at large with their politics. I don't care if you're on the left or the right or in the middle, where you are, I should be able to have a civil conversation with you without all this divisiveness. And the problem is we don't listen and we don't see them where if we practice that understanding, we don't hear sorry, oh my bad. And it's a terrible example of what we have seen. Yeah, and bringing up the pandemic, this thought just came to mind to me where what a difference there was when 9-11 happened and then when the pandemic happened. You look at 9-11 and, and what was the difference? I remember a therapist telling me this once. You look at like plagues in the past or here I live in Utah and there's a big pioneer heritage and there's these stories of these pioneers coming over the plains and there's pioneers all over the world. I think a lot of people can relate to this in their family history. They're burying husbands and children on the side of the road, right? Right. Think about the world war and what these people did to survive. How did they get through it? This is literally what a therapist asked me one day. How did they do it? As I'm reeling and, and trying to get through my own storm. Very resilient, she, yeah. They got through it because they did it together. They were sending sons and husbands off to war together. So the divisiveness, you look at where we as a country, I think we're really successful in uniting with 9-11 is we did that together, right? Yeah. It was this huge bonding experience. And then you look at COVID and there has been such an uproar and so much divisiveness, just neighbor to neighbor within church congregations everywhere at work, right? We want to talk about safe cultures and you look at it, we did not do it together. No, it became so politicized and just everything does nowadays. And it's kind of like if you wore a mask, you were a Democrat. And if you didn't wear one, you were a Republican. That's really what it yes. boiled down to. Yeah. Me and my friend that I was just talking to, we talk about that, just like the contention exactly. that was so, so palpable. And I think we're still dealing with that. No right. question. It really did a number on this country. And there's a lot of reasons we can blame. And certainly 9-11 was an isolated event and COVID. It was just like the gift that kept on giving, right? And I don't right. think anyone expected it to be prolonged as much as it was. I think those first two weeks, we were a lot more unified as a country than two years later, right? For sure. It's interesting. And I'm really encouraged by the younger generations with their authenticity. So how does a leader then leverage authentic relationships with our team? How do we authentically, well, leverage is really the key to it because it's, you know, being authentic. When I do this as a speaker, when I talk to an audience and I start with an audience, I got to get the audience to like me. So I got to get all the guys in the audience to unfold their arms and go, okay, I like this guy instead of folding their arms and closing me off. And then I need the women in the audience to go, okay, he's okay as well. So the best way I do that is to share stories of vulnerability in the first five minutes. I'm sharing failures 
And I want them to know, hey, I've had lots of them. Matter of fact, I've learned more from them than I have from the successes. And that seems to create the connection. They're going, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. Or if we've lost someone or we've gone through a divorce, you can relate to that. So how can a leader use that internally and leverage it? How can they show that authenticity? Well, I think what you said is so powerful to highlight. No, I was going to say highlight weaknesses. I wouldn't quite say it like that. I know what you mean no, though, yeah. But share the falling down and the getting up and you know share that as part of the process as not a problem. The thing that comes to mind immediately is being willing to ask for help, asking your people for help. Because once again, if as a leader, man, I remember this situation where I was doing a speaking gig, I believe, and I had a neighbor watch my kids just for a couple hours. I have two little kids. And when I came back, I said, hey, I'd love to return the favor for you sometime and, and take your kids off your hands. You can go do whatever. And I remember her saying this to me, her saying, oh, I could never let you do that. I wouldn't want to be a burden. Now, what did I learn right then? Do you think I ever, ever asked that person for help again? No, never. No. Right? Yeah. Because I learned really quickly, oh, you see asking for help as a burden. So we talk about being authentic, being willing to ask for help when you need it, not putting on a fake persona that because you're the boss that you have it all figured out, right? That's a really good point. And that's not someone I can relate to. Also, I don't relate to someone that doesn't need any help. Right. Authoritarian style of leadership. It's just kind of gone by the way. So like we see how good it works, right? Yeah. People are scared and, to challenge it. And exactly. And I mean, it gets jobs done sometimes. I just don't know like longevity wise of employee retention, especially in today's day and age and this mental health, just really silent pandemic that's rampant right now. I just don't think that you're going to have people stay loyal to you long-term. And so if that's what you're looking for, the work might get done today, but I don't think they're going to stick around. I haven't seen that. And I've never certainly felt that way in my life under that sort of leadership. I talk about being in that really toxic environment with that leader that was, oh, man, I've never met anyone else like that. And I, I don't share too many details, but really I've never been under a leader so awful. And what ended up happening in that situation, I was out of there as fast. I left the work assignment early, like two months early. I had other leaders that were healthy saying, get out of there. Yeah. Well, that's an extreme example, sure. but I mean, that is the most authoritative I've watched in, in my life. Right. And the kind of work I put in, I was nervous to work. I was having a panic attack in the employee bathroom, just not sleeping. I'd stopped eating. If you want work, that's not how you get it. Not long-term. No, no, it makes sense. And it goes to the overall morale of the group. And I know you talk about that in your programs as well. You talk about fostering connection through high definition thinking. Unpack that one for me. I'd be happy to. It's one of my favorites. So as I came out of these years of really struggling with real clinical anxiety and depression and the way that impacted my work environment and seeing these leaders and these people that just made me feel seen and gave me the hope to keep going and become a better person and just get a handle on things. It really changed. I felt like how I saw people. And part of that was their examples. How I think of it, the thing that just makes the most sense in my crazy brain is I think of it like television. So we look at the history of television. And in 1927, the first black and white TV came out. Philo Taylor Farnsworth, he's 21 years old. He comes out with the first TV and, and it's incredible, right? People have black and white TV in their home. They have moving picture. They don't have to go to the villa or the theater to see plays. They can see it within their own home. Well, that was amazing. But I don't think people were looking at that, right? Thinking, man, I just wish this was in color. Like, could you have tried a little harder, right? Like right. no one's thinking that because that it was new and it's all they knew, Yeah. right? But then in 1954, the first color TV. And the color wasn't that great. It wasn't vibrant. It was grainy, but it just made the experience better. Right. It made the experience better, more realistic, right? Yep. So I think about sometimes we look at people in black and white. And what I mean by that is in absolutes, good, bad, wrong, wrong, right? 
old, millennial, you can yep. choose. Right? We're judgy. Yeah. Absolute thinking of putting it in a box with a label, how it is. I'm thinking of a very certain office episode right now, if anyone's seen the office where Dwight goes around, he puts like note cards or post-it notes on everyone's head, you know, what you are, whether it's Jewish or Italian or, you know what I mean? And then yeah. he wants to to speak, right? But yeah, it's pretty funny. But really black and white, that's essentially what we're doing, right? And I think all of us grow up as babies, as black and white thinkers. My kids still to this day, they want to know, is, is that a bad guy or a good guy? The nuance is tough. But all of us, we have these life experiences that challenge that way of thinking, right? Right. And well, so- the more perspectives, the more information we get, we make those first judgment calls. We make those assumptions. And it's like when we talk in front of a room, the first thing I say to an audience, I'm going to challenge your assumptions. When I start opening my mouth, you're already making a judgment call. And I quit wearing suits 10 years ago with the gigs. I used to wear the ties and the cufflinks a whole bit. Now I show up, I roll up my sleeves. They can see a little bit of tat and they go, mm-hmm. hey, he's he's okay. He's not my dad. And <laughs> so he's all right, right? But it's because they're judging us. We judge books by their cover and we judge people by their cover. What they drive, we're still in an image culture. We still do that. We have an ages. Oh, you're too young. You're too old. You're male. You're female. What color you are. You're right. We have those black and white lines all the time. And that's how we tend to look at the world. Right. So when I speak to an audience and we talk about high definition, what I'm really asking is for people to be counterculture against that, which is because mm. for me, I felt like seeing people in black and white served me for a time. And then I had situations situations and people that I was introduced in my life. And that did not fit anymore. That did not work for me to see people that way anymore. And the the tagline in my book, compassion and connection save lives. The more I connected with them, right. Moving close to their story, which that almost always for me leads to greater compassion. It just comes along with it. It's like a buy one, get one free. And I did that. I think of it like black and white going to color television where all of a sudden I'm seeing them more realistically because no one is just one thing, right? Right. And even if we look at technology, I mean, technology didn't stop with the color television. In 1998, we had the first high def broadcast which I think was John Glenn going up into space. He was the oldest guy to go up in space. I think he was 73 or at least to return from his mission. But that's in 1998. I still remember the first time I watched something on a high definition television. It was so realistic. I didn't know if I liked it. It felt like they were in the room with me, right? Right. But so when I talk about high definition thinking, black and white is absolute thinking, going to color thinking in color, which is having that compassion and connection. And then really, I think we're set up to think in high definition of people, which is your default is to look for their strengths. And that's what you amplify. That's your default when you look at someone, right? What can I learn from them? And that's really the place that I like to live. And it takes being conscious for sure. And I'm bad at it so many days, right? And there are days when I miss the black and white thinking, when I can just see someone on their own, just be like, you're a jerk, you're in the wrong. Like, man, it's fun to be right about everything, isn't it? But as a leader who wants people to stay and people to stick and to be at their best, I have not found that that is a super helpful way to view the people you lead. Well, it's an excellent metaphor you use. You can call it System one, system two, system one's your amygdala, but sees everything first, right? It makes the judgment call. So if something looks dangerous, we're always on the lookout, even in a conscious or an unconscious way. You can multitask, you can do some things, and your subconscious is working for you. So we make judgment calls. We see what somebody's wearing, how they're behaving. We have to actually go to prefrontal cortex system two in order to think about it. And my wife's very empathetic and like just if you tell her something sad, she's with you 100%. And she's right there with you. She's crying with you instantly, totally gets it. I have to sit there and kind of think about it. But I've actually learned to become more empathetic by actually taking that perspective and going, wow, I wonder what kind of day they had today. Or so if somebody cuts me off, I used to hit the road rage thing and be mad and 
wish I had a laser in my car. But now I'm going, I wonder why that person's so aggressive today. And I have to do the math. I have to actually ask myself the questions and I don't let it bother me. And it's water off a duck's back at this point. But I try and just don't get my dander up based on things that used to do it for me. That's why I love the definition, high definition thinking. It's brilliant. That's really what, what we need. And wouldn't you say, wouldn't you agree? I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm pretty sure I know the answer that it's a higher quality of life when you adopt that. Yes. Like as far as your own personal peace and happiness and joy. I mean, if we want to just look at it as a selfish perspective, oh, it's just a better way to live. Way better. There's always going to be jerks. There's always going to be buttheads. There's always going to be, you can use whatever expletive you want to describe people. There's always going to be that. There's always going to be bad people. But how we react to it is the important part. And that's why, you know, I love as as leaders, whether you've got a small business, whether you work within an organization or company, the connection, I think, is everything. And how we use those connections and the tools, like our channels of communication, we have over 29 channels of communication just on social to reach. And we're on it. We're on all the channels. We publish on it. But it's a chore for me. And I, there's people who get depressed just by looking at what other people are doing on Facebook or Instagram or their lives, or they maybe have a fake persona out here and real life sucks for them or whatever. So it's a good vehicle. It's a tool if it's used properly. But like I say, I think it's a matter of how do we create the right environment within our organizations so that they do thrive, particularly when we've been maybe an old school organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm one of those people where I've just, I was telling a friend the other day, I'm not mature enough to be on social media, which social media. Yeah, has also gotten me a lot of gigs, right? It's like free marketing. How can you not as a keynote speaker yeah, yeah. be on LinkedIn and Facebook and those things? And so I'm finding my way, but gosh, man, I can't lie and say that it doesn't have an impact on my mental health when I'm on there very long. And I couldn't even tell you exactly why. I just know it does. I just feel just the feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's just, just the feeling. feeling. No, and it's valid. It's getting better because I think there's a lot of people who suffer with mental health issues. We just saw a senator from Virginia check himself in with severe depression, which good for him. And hopefully he waves that torch because a lot of people same with leaders they don't want to show that vulnerability maybe they're not feeling like they're qualified maybe it's that imposter syndrome maybe they feel hey i don't want to be weak in front of this group and because we always think leadership is that strong leader so i like this form of leadership i think it's got a nice human touch to it and like we see leadership for instance twitter we just had elon musk bought twitter and then of course he's saying hey you show up for work or you're fired if you don't show up friday you're done and they went from 8000 employees down to 2000 employees and they just fired a, another couple of hundred it's old school management style like it's that command and control and mm-hmm. no regard for people's feelings their lives what they're doing what their commitments are so i think companies will catch on to this and evolve i think you're onto something really from a new aspect of leadership the goal obviously to build a work culture that thrives how do we do that how do we build a culture that's a good thriving work environment where people are valued and i think it comes back to being the role model of what that looks like, right? Right. I see you. I appreciate you. I trust you. How do you show that to other people and then instill that in them? Because like I said, when you see me, I'll follow you. So if you're doing it, I'm going to follow what you're doing. Another principle that I love to talk about because it involves someone really important to me, probably the greatest leader I ever knew. I have a sister named Amy and she's five and a half years older than me. And I just, as a kid, I just adored her, right? Like I was just the little sister and she always found ways to see me. She wasn't a typical teenager where she like pushed me away, but she valued me and cared about me. I remember even seeing a slip of paper she had once where she'd written some goals. And at the top, it said, play with Julie more. 
I mean, who does that as a teenager for their little sister, right? Right. That's just kind of who she was. And it, it was cool as we became adults, we became incredibly close. She became my very best friend. And I remember I just brought home my daughter from the hospital. I just had my daughter and I was recovering from a C-section and she came to visit. And I remember her ooing and eyeing over the baby. We're sitting in the baby's nursery. And she said, you know, I don't want to tell you this because I didn't want you to freak out. And you've been obviously going through a lot birthing a child, but I found a lump in my breast and we whittled it down to three options. We've seen different specialists. And one of them is obviously breast cancer. And she's like, there's no way. Right. And at this time she's only 31 years old. I'm 26. And I was like, no, there's no way it's cancer. You can't, you're so young. And I just remember her saying these words. She looked at me, we're sitting in the nursery, just sister to sister. And she just said, but what if it is cancer? She had five kids at the time. And oh, and also two days before this, when she went in to get an MRI done of her chest, they have to do a standard pregnancy test beforehand. And she said, I'm also pregnant. Um, So pregnant with her sixth child, you know about big families. You've got a big family too, right? We love our babies. (laughs) Pregnant with her sixth child. And she said, what if this is cancer? I've got five kids watching me. I have a baby in me already. I can't let this, I've seen things like cancer. And I would put in here, maybe a pandemic, make people harder. And I've seen it make them softer. She said, I can't let this make me harder. I have too many people watching me. I have to let it make me softer. And by people, she was talking about her little people, right? right? Which is, that's the leadership role she valued most in her life was a mother. And that night later, I got a text message from her that it was confirmed it was breast cancer. And I watched her, we talk about soft skills and staying hard or soft. And I really watched her the next six years on and off treatments, giving birth to the baby, him being miraculously okay, even though she did chemo with him in utero and things. I watched her do very, very hard work. And she somehow stayed soft. And she asked people, she asked the nurse at the chemo lab, because I was with her through it. She asked him, Hey, you know, did that boyfriend that you went out, was he giving you a ring yet? She remembered people's stories. She didn't, she didn't make it about her. And so this last September she passed and as I was helping her as she was on hospice, thank you. She was on hospice and we would take shifts as siblings and her good, dedicated husband. I remember the last time she ever said words to me and she's not really in her right mind at this point. And she's struggling to just get around. And I was, I was holding her hand and I was kind of sleeping on her. She was sleeping on me and I had taken her out to the living room to get some light. And I remember I just, I kind of kissed her on the cheek and I whispered in her ear and I just said, Hey, Hey, sweetie, I'm, I'm going to go, but I'm going to be back. Okay. I had to go pick up kids. And the next person was coming for their shift and she grabbed my hand. She hadn't talked to me all day and she grabbed my hand. She just closed it so tight. Right. So this is one part where it's okay to be hard. She's goes so hard, not stop. And she just said, literally the word, last word she said to me, she said, so, so grateful. And she would pass on her 38th birthday just a little bit later. But when you say, how do you do this in your cultures. And I don't say that story just to get us all crying, although it does usually make me cry. But really, if I'm going to be authentic, I have learned some of these principles from very deep, hard suffering and seen that it is within your reach to say soft as a leader and to still carry expectation. Excellent point. And I would follow that girl anywhere. Right. I did when she was kind of out of her mind and she'd want me to come and and take craft scissors and cut out weeds and make them into bouquets, like just these things that didn't make sense because she was just kind of in and out of it. I did it because of the way she treated me my whole life. I'd follow her anywhere. And and now she's she's gone somewhere I can't follow for the first time. That's that's really hard for me, but I can follow her legacy. And so it's only made the fire in me maybe stronger that it is possible to be a good human being and to lead people. I've watched it firsthand. And so I'm never gonna, I'm never going to quit 
promoting that message that I believe in and that I feel like I learned in, in really meaningful, intimate ways. No one can take that from me. And, and I just, I love to see how her example and how the things I've learned have impacted people. That's That's been really sweet for me because I need all this too, right? And here's a fellow learner. You said at the beginning, an expert, I was just talking to a friend the other day about what it means to be an expert and we're all just learning together, right? right. So that's what I have to offer is, hey, here's what I've learned. And also here's some pretty sweet research, right. some really big universities with big names that I don't have that can back it up. So. Well, you have lots of data, but you know, the best teachers are the ones who've experienced it and you're wise beyond your years. And I think you've found something. And had you not had the experiences that you had, the traumas that you had, the life story you had growing up with your family and with dad and all of the issues that you've had to deal with in life stories, those are the things that make us good as leaders and as speakers and communicators and you certainly do a, a great job of that. My wife has a tattoo and you reminded me of it and it's from Helen Reddy's lyric song from I Am Woman. Her tattoo is wisdom born of pain. And Julie Lee, you certainly have a lot of wisdom that's been born of pain and it's good leadership advice for those who want to be good, strong leaders personally within their families, their own personal organizations, as well as the companies they work for. And leaders should have the courage of that. So thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for this. Julie Lee. I see you leadership and the connected leader and we'll have all your information in the show notes. People can find what's the best website to find you. Yeah. Just my website, which is julieleespeaks.com. And we'll have all of that in there and they can find your books and uh, all the other information. Lots of good stuff on the website. Julie Lee. Thanks so much. Thank you. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.